welcome to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're really happy to have you here. We took a little bit of a vacation, just like a, a little two-week break at the end of the summer here. And I moved. I moved out of Manhattan, which, uh, if you can just imagine the most stressful thing to ever happen to you and then multiply it by 10, that's what trying to live in Manhattan with a car is like. So now I live just outside of Manhattan and I have a place to park my car. Uh, it smells like a regular place again. I don't live in a very smelly place anymore. So I'm, I'm living a little, a little more stress-free, you know? So I took the last couple of weeks to pack and move and get settled in my new place. And I want to thank Alec Pulianis for uh, hosting the show a couple of weeks ago when I was on vacation, a, a literal a vaca- literally on vacation in South Carolina. Whew. But I'm glad to be back, and uh, we got a lot going on. The live album series starts today. We're going to go well into November until we've covered every live album. And this is for you guys. This is uh, the album series was something I wanted to do. But a bunch of you requested that we do a live album series as well. So here we are. We're going to start in 1976 and jet all the way up to 20, what was it, 15 for R40? 2015. And I think it'll be fun. First, though, uh, there's going to be a little bit of a change to the Rushcast format. Basically, uh, we're not going to do the show every week anymore. And I promise this is going to be, this will be a good thing. So don't get too upset. Uh, it, I've been doing Rushcast for over a year and a half every week. And at some point, I, you just run out of stuff to talk about. Not to, not to say I'm running out of things to talk about right now, but it does get harder to plan each episode. I want each episode's content to be high enough quality that you want to keep listening. I don't want to do it, you know, we're doing this for quality, not quantity. I'd rather have an episode every now and again that is a really meaty, juicy episode that has good stuff, really like engaging, uh, engaging content. Rather than me, you know, repeating things and stuttering over myself as usual. So, the reason this is going to be so great for you is because I want to have the show be much more uh, user-based and kind of uh, dependent on you, the listener. So, what's going to happen, a lot of you email me already. We talk via email a lot. We're going to start a mailing list and you guys will receive emails from me uh, as we plan the next episode. And I say we, meaning you guys and myself, we, we are going to plan the episodes together now. So you can, you send me an email and say, Hey, I heard this guy on a, on a podcast or a radio show and he had this theory about some rush song predicted yeah, you know, some constellations, blah, blah, blah. There's a bunch of sci-fi stuff people send me all the time. And they say, I think it's really interesting. Well, from now on, you, you're going to send that to me as kind of a pitch to say, hey, I want to talk about this on Rushcast. And then I will take that, take the notes or take your email and store it. And I will start to assemble the next episode. And part of most of these episodes will be me interacting with you, calling different people and having conversations with different Rush fans about different 
uh, topics. So the bottom line here is I'm going to do an episode when I have an episode. Maybe some, maybe I'll have a month where I have an episode filled every single week, but I'm going to try to do a few a month, you know, at least one a month. Uh, but they're going to be big action packed one hour episodes and they'll, they'll be much more engaging this way. So you need to email me if you want to be on the mailing list. Our email, as always, is rushcast2112 at gmail.com. I'll set you up on the list, and I'll send something out and say, hey, we're uh, so-and-so and I are planning on talking about, I don't know, um, the Test for Echo Tour. And does anybody have something on the Test for Echo Tour they would like to, to discuss? Or has uh, we're looking for somebody to come on the show who has seen... Who, who, who went to a concert during the 2112 tour, etc. If I'm looking for something specific, I can ask you guys about it. I think this is going to be fun. I think this is going to be a step in the correct direction, whereas we're, we're not having episodes every week, but there'll be better episodes. All right, so don't freak out. This is not going to be a bad thing. Uh, this will happen after the live album series. So once we get to the R40 episode... In November, we'll start right there. I'll we'll stop, and uh, we might have an episode after. It depends on if I have the content, and we'll go from there. But I'm going to be bugging you for the next few months here, every episode, to send me an email and, and ask to be on the mailing list. Today we're talking about all the worlds of stage from 1976. And with me today on the show to help me talk about a great live album and a lot of uh, a lot of people's favorite live albums is Dave Steiner from St. Louis, Missouri. How's it going, man? I'm doing fine, Jake. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be a part of this. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. No problem. It should be fun. I mean, uh, I'd like to ask how old you are, if you don't mind. Oh, not at all. Uh, I am 51. So that's like right around my dad's age, and I know uh, a lot of people his age really dig this album. And yeah. as I revisited it this week, I realized why. I mean, I knew why to begin with, uh, but you're you're reminded, like, man, this is just a collection of the best content they had at the time. Right, right, and and uh, and it's and unlike the you know the, the live albums that are you know, to come after it, it's the most raw of all the live albums. And, uh, you know, whether it was the technology at the time or just the performances or whatever, it's certainly the rawest live rush album. Cause everything since then, since then has had some sort of polish to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially future records. We end up like over polishing to an extent and obviously right, we'll right. get, we'll get to that obviously, but uh, later in later episodes, but like you said, this one is so raw. It's their first. I think about like the bands I listen to now that are just starting their four or five albums in, and um, a lot of them don't have a live album yet. I think that's the way to do it. Some bands. I remember Linkin Park when I was listening to them uh, last decade or whatever, and they had a live album come out after their first album, and I thought. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like that's not how oh. Rush did it. And that out al- that live right. album was awful. 
I should say it was really? after their second uh, live album. It was called Live in Texas. It was so bad. You could tell it was a band that did not have it together yet. And uh, right. Whereas with Rush, we get four albums in, and then they and, and obviously the fourth one is the biggest, uh, and then they represent it in a live album. And I think that's a good way to do that. I think that yeah. you know if they had released if this was an album, their first live album was after like Caress of Steel. I don't think it would have been very popular. I don't think it would have been very good. But after twenty one twelve, it seemed they had enough like big, uh, like fan favorites to make a good live album. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and actually, you're kind of leading into what I wanted to first point out about it. it it's all about the context of the times in which this album was released, and uh, and I'm sure your dad can attest to this as well. That um, I would say, and I was thinking about this in the last couple of weeks leading up to this was, you know, it seems like in the '70s there was a big boom in a lot of live albums, like. And I think a lot of that, the linchpin for that was the Woodstock Festival and the subsequent film and the soundtrack from that seemed to sort of, I guess, you know, throw into the public conscious that, hey, you know, live, you know, these live recordings of these rock and roll shows are really cool. And then right after that, you, you know, that that set off a a whole series of great classic live albums that came out in the uh, 70s. But I think one of the cool things about what, what Rush did here, and there was a few other albums, like some other artists or bands during that time, they would have three or four albums out, and they weren't quite getting the exposure and the popularity, you know, that they were looking for. And, uh, you know, it's like, for instance, I never heard of Peter Frampton before Peter Frampton came, come, Comes Alive came out. And then all of a sudden he was the biggest thing in the world. Uh, but he was, he had already had three or four albums out. Same with Kiss and Cheap Trick, uh, Bob Seger, uh, and, and Rush was right in line with that, right? There was a series, all these albums came out in the mid seventies when these semi struggling bands who did have a good amount of material, uh, but it just wasn't translating into sales. So a lot of times what record companies would do would be, okay, well, let's package together a live album. It's sort of like kind of a greatest hits in a way, like what you alluded to earlier, especially the first four albums, they picked out just the cream of the crop of all of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's put this album out and see if it, you know, if it takes off and, and like what your dad said. And for me, and there's a lot of folks, you know, my age, even though 2112 was sort of their breakout album, a lot of us, really were first exposed to rush through all the world of stage, including myself. Oh, absolutely. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to via this show or just listeners who will email me and say, I got in through all the worlds of stage. Like that's where it all started for me. And you listen right. to it and you, and you get it. You're like, Oh yeah, this is, this is a great representation of everything they had at that time. Um, and, yeah. and I could see people it's similar to as me as a 24 year old listened to Russian Rio and went, Oh my God, I have to find these songs on their studio albums. You know, I had to find driven. It took me forever right. to get test for echo and find driven. Cause I heard it on Rio. I can, I can totally see that happening with all the world's a stage. Oh, I lost him. Hold on a minute. I lost him. That's the first time I've done that. Yo, Dave, are you there? 
I'm here. I can hear you. Sorry, man. I lost you for like two seconds. It's totally my fault. I won't do it again. I promise. Oh, it's okay. But I'm just you saying, I think, you, I think yeah, that uh, on all the world's a stage, I can totally see someone like you hearing 2112 or something for nothing or Bastille Day and saying, I got to find these records. This is so good. Right, right. Well, and in my case, uh, you know, I mentioned Kiss just a minute ago. See, I, you know, I grew up in a family, you know, we, my mom and my sister loved music. They just didn't like rock and roll. And uh, it was about a year before I discovered Rush that I discovered Kiss. And, and their, their first live album was Kiss Alive, and that was the one album that exploded them out onto the scene. And um, I also happened to hang around um, friends in my neighborhood that were like a couple years older than me. So I was 12 at the time uh, I discovered Rush, but I had friends who were like, you know, 14 and 15 years old who were, you know, turning me on to all these good bands that I wasn't hearing at home, sure. you know? And, uh, so, and I remember, you know, in the suburbs here in St. Louis, just, you know, one spring day in 77, my friend Rich Kennedy uh, had a turntable in his backyard, and he, he was always turning me on to stuff, and then he turned me on to this album. And, you know, so my ears were still, my rock and roll ears were still developing, if you will. Uh, but what the thing that struck me about All the World, the stage, was just the absolute power that came out of it. You know, I mean, it was... Yeah. You know, no pun intended, but it was like a rush of, wow, this is something else. And you could tell, you know, even though I wasn't, you know, into music theory or anything like that, you could tell that something a little extra was going on with these guys than Kiss or Aerosmith or whoever else I might have been getting into at the time. So let me ask, like, uh, for, for somebody in your situation at that in 1996, in like the circumstances you were in musically what stood out to you about this record was there was there a song like you say you you still hadn't kind of developed your your musical ear or, or something right right was right. there a track on this record where you thought i don't i don't quite get this one yet that one's above me i i don't understand that one yet but the rest of it i love or was there one that stood yeah. out was there one that was like this is just so amazing the rest is good but this one just sticks out big time right well uh on the first part of that question uh in fact i i do remember my friend rich putting on well here i'm gonna date myself of course he put on side three uh which uh on the vinyl the first song i ever heard by rush was by tour and the snow dog and uh and i think that middle part uh, you know, where Alex sort of extends out the long jam in the middle there, yeah, that sort yeah. of spacey thing. I don't know if I quite got that, you know. That was pretty uh, abstract on this on this recording. Yes, it was. And, 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 of course, being 12 years old, and, I mean, I was, you know, getting exposed to a lot of music, but that was sort of like a spacey thing that I, I guess my young ears just hadn't heard yet. And, of course, many years later, I totally got into it, but I do remember that at that time thinking, yeah, this is kind of weird. But then the rest of it, uh, you know, especially when you start from, you know, the side one with Bastille Day and Anthem, I mean, it just, it just blows you over like a freight train, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then as far as anything that might've stood out, well, uh, I guess, the, it, you know, it's funny when it, Getty introduces 2112, he says, we'd like to introduce you side one, from our latest album. And of course, up to that point, 
you know, my, my experience with pop songs or rock songs have been their average about four or five minutes at the most. And here he is introducing a, a song that's going to last for an entire side. And I think that kind of blew me away, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, and then the other one that I think initially blew, blew me away, and which who wouldn't it, is, you know, the working man finding my way. And then especially the, the Neil Peart drum solo at the end. Because, you know, that's, that was a lot of people's first introduction to, you know, what a master he is and just a beast. And uh, so I think in that regard, that's, you know, sort of my answer to that is on what I didn't get and what really hit me at first. Yeah. I want to start kind of with the back end of the album, The End. Uh, okay. And that's with Working Man, Finding My Way and What You're Doing. Uh, what You're Doing kind of feels to me like a f- um it makes R40 seem more like a flashback to this record because we hadn't seen w- the song what you're doing never really saw the light of day after this th- this few years here i think they may have done it once or twice after this tour but uh and then we get it at the very end of the set again and on R40 um, right. That feels more like a like a wink wink kind of thing, as opposed to it just being hey let's play this old song we haven't played before. Obviously that is the case. They said let's just play this old song, but I think there was a, especially with where it was placed on our forty. I mean it had to be placed there because it was chronological, but uh, it just feels reminiscent of this tour now. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying a little bit there. Yeah, and well, and and. And what brought to mind while you were saying that was after what you're doing, you know, as they're doing the outro and the crowd is winding down, and then you hear, you know, uh, Getty and Alex, you know, they're, they're saying something like, oh, man, what a show. Oh, man, oh, man, I tell you. Blah, and, then, and then you hear that door slam. Mm-hmm. And if, it, if there's anything reminiscent there to what you're saying, you know, I, you know, has the door slammed on Rush now here in 2015 slash 16? We don't know, but I kind of see where you're, what you're saying there. Yeah, that's a cool little tie-in. Um, mm-hmm. Additionally, I mean, and also what you're doing, when I heard it on R40, I thought, how how was this never played live in my lifetime? It, well, it, it really lends itself to a live setting. It's it's heavy and powerful and, and it grooves really hard, but I, I don't know. Uh, well, yeah. not only in your lifetime, but uh, what you said just a minute ago, I, I think they might have played this. Uh, no, you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't. I think after the All the World the Stage tour, because they did tour this live album uh, after they released it. Uh-huh. I think they. I think they played what you're doing on that tour, but after that, it was never played again. Right. So I even in all my decades of going to see rush i've never seen it until r40 working man also has this sort of it feels like it's held above the rest of the tracks on this record because it's sort of their most mature song at this point in 1976 four albums in everything on 2112 is brand new material that's like i gotta remind myself maybe the older listeners don't but like that was at this time, modern in 1976, oh, like yeah. 2112 was considered modern and like cutting edge. Whereas I right. look at it and I'm like, that's old as dirt, you know, compared to <laughs> compared to me. Right. Or right. the albums I grew up watching being released. Uh, 
but I look at Working Man, it's like, man, at that time, Working Man was the song they had definitely played the most live, right? right? It was probably yeah, the oh, song yeah. they were proudest of in terms of older material. It was probably the the biggest crowd pleaser. It was this oh, big yeah. rocking song they always played last or towards the end of the set. And um, it just kind of struck me when I listened to this week. I thought, man, they get to working, man. And it's like, oh, here's the veteran. Here's the guy that we've been with since the beginning. And uh, right. it, it, it never really felt like that to me when I hear it on Time Machine or something. While I do think Time Machine is the best recording ever of that song. Additionally, I, do you yeah. ever, Dave, do you notice how uh, all those like fancy, super flashy aspects of the jam part of Working Man that are present today when we hear it live and right. for the last 10 or 20 years were present on the very first live album? On all the worlds of stage, those guys are going nuts. Maybe that's right. because Neil's in the group. I don't know. But Getty and Alex as well are feeding off of that. It's really interesting that that happened so early. Right. Well, and, and also you can tell, and I, you, you can, I'm sure, attest to this as a musician. Neil brought something else to that Rutsy original stuff, that original Rutsy stuff that, that John just didn't have. You know, mm-hmm. uh, And he just brought a lot of power to it. And you're right, and they are feeding off each other, and there's a lot of those elements that have carried on up to the present day. Um, I don't know, are, are, are you familiar with any of any uh, other uh, live recordings that were done before All the World of Stage, like from you know the early Cleveland shows they did in like 74 and 75? I'm, I'm not super familiar with like the stuff outside the official releases, but I know a lot of listeners are into bootlegs. They know of... Uh, you know, famous bootleg recordings of the Caress of Steel tour, et cetera. Right, right. Well, there's some there's some versions of Working Man on those er- those first couple of tours um, that just shred. And I mean, they extend the jam out way longer. I mean, we're talking like you know, 11 minutes before they even get to the drum solo. <laughs> you know, and, uh, so I mean, some of my favorite Working Man renditions are from there. But with the one you mentioned on Time Machine, especially that, I mean, that Cleveland show, he just freaking goes berserk mm. uh, on on that DVD. And you're right. I mean, I, I've watched it scores of times now, and I still get goosebumps every time I see it. The other thing is, you know, you said they extended the jam back on the you know, Caress of Steel Tour, for example, they had so much less material, you know? Well, yeah. Like, they yeah. had to fill a set, which might have yeah. been pretty cool to see him jam on that tune a little bit longer. Well, and also, if, um, if, if you get a chance or you can find it, I'm sure you can maybe YouTube it or something, but uh, a recording from their first show in Cleveland or one of their first shows in Cleveland before Fly By Night was even done, in the middle of working, man, you can hear them working out parts of uh, uh, Bytor and the Snow Dog. There's, you can hear Bytor and the Snow Dog in the middle of working, man. I'm not so sure about Anthem. There's some sort of, you know, Anthem-like vibe. But there, you can tell that they're jamming stuff that would then, on future, on the very next album, be flushed out through in some individual songs. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they're all, like, the same keys, too, as well. Like... Two as well. Yeah, I can say that. Uh, <laughs> like, um, by tours in E, Working Man's in E. You know, a lot of these are guitar-friendly keys. 
So when you're jamming on E, you can you can play some new riffs in E, you know, and maybe some of those riffs yeah. become songs. That's, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So if you ever do get a chance, I you know encourage you to do so because you you'll freak out. But, <laughs> but getting back to but getting back to all the world of stage, I also I, it, that as well as and well, I guess we'll get to it here in a little bit. The fly by night in the mood medley. It was sort of like they're introducing medleys, which then would become a part of rush sets for many, many years to come, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I wanted to say my next point was about fly by night and this might be the biggest kind of headline for this album is we got to hear fly by night live on a recording. It doesn't happen ever again for in history yeah I don't, at least i don't think may i maybe the next tour maybe i i highly I, doubt it I, I don't have the set list in front of me but I, I, um, think, I think they did include fly by night and the in the mood uh thing on on the farewell of the kings i could be wrong but i think they did uh but if they didn't then you're right all the world the stage was the last time they played it yeah certainly and it's the only recording we have of it Oh yeah, yeah, or at least official recording. You know? Right, yeah. So like, I, I we know we don't know why that is. I I I think it's because the band is not very proud of it. I don't think that's the sound they think uh, they wanted to be or something. I don't I don't know. That doesn't mean they can't play it live anymore. They just have chosen not to. Well, and I guess it. Um, and I was thinking about this earlier today too. Is that fly by night and in the mood as as far as all the world the stage goes is as close to the poppiest kind of rush we're going to get, you know? Uh, and, and maybe, and I know Alex, I, I read in an interview, you know, last year that he, he tried to push for fly by night initially to, to include it on R 40. Uh, but I guess, you know, for whatever reason, it just didn't sit right with the other guys and, uh, he he did think that it, it, it was about time to bring it back, but I guess he got voted down. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine Getty going, "Okay, Al, uh, you're gonna sing it, right?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, we, we'll play that song. You're gonna <laughs> sing it though. Uh, and, that, and, that, that pro- and I'm sure hilarity would have ensued. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think another for in my head another flashback to R40, or I guess I'm saying that backwards. I, this feels like R40 was a flashback to this album with Lakeside Park. Not to say they never performed it again, but right. uh, Lakeside Park is a song I looked down on for a long time. I, I didn't enjoy the sort of arrangement, the, the the bass tone, the guitar tone. Something about it wasn't doesn't, doesn't really click for me on the studio record. Uh, but when I heard it on R40's tour, I thought this is actually a, a really kick-ass song. Well, heck yeah, and in, and in my opinion, I've I've been one of those. I, whether I'm a minority or not, I've always liked Lakeside Park. And and you know, getting back to one of your earlier comments or questions, uh, that was one of the songs that stuck out to me. And I, I also I think on the album here, I I just like Getty's you know sort of friendly uh, introduction. You know, it's about a place not too far from where Neil was born and. And it's, you know, and, and so I guess in my, you know, reminiscing back to when I was 12 years old, it would get me to thinking about, well, where's this Lakeside Park at? You that's know, a, that's a great point <laughs> because it was a very sensitive and, and sincere moment right before that song. 
And Getty, because yeah. we know we don't, we rarely hear Getty say, "Hey, Neil wrote these lyrics about X, Y, and Z, and he feels uh-huh. this about them." Here's the song. Well, you know, know, that's a great point. Yeah, we don't. I don't. Yep. I can't think of another time where he. Uh, this is kind of off topic. I'll never forget the second leg of the Snakes and Arrows tour, where I heard Getty say the word "rush" at my concert. He, he said something about the band itself and he said rush and it was just kind of weird for me to hear him acknowledge the band's name and as a brand new fan i had never heard any of them say the word rush uh but i had the same reaction with this when he's like neil wrote these lyrics blah 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 i'm like i've never heard them on stage like acknowledge each other i've heard him say mr alex lifeson on guitar or whatever but that was a a much more genuine moment somehow right right and the song itself is genuine. It's a, it's a nice, you know, uh, it's a nice memory, you know, and, and, and certainly as Neil does throughout all of his lyrics is he paints just a really perfect picture of, you know, what it was like to go to that fair and to go to that park and, and, uh, you know, smoking on the pier and drinking by the lighthouse, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then of course the, the, the very, and it's really one of Rush, in my opinion, one of Neil's best lyrics, or at least most sentimental is, you know, though it's just the memories, some memories last forever. Yeah, and, those lines are great. And, and you, those, can, you, can apply, you can apply that to everything in your life, not just Lakeside Park. Right, you know? and those, that's the line for me that's, that always sticks in my head uh, from this song. Just like you said, that's, that's kind of the big line. Do you ever yep. think about how awesome Bastille Day and Anthem are right next to each other as like oh, a, yeah. as a one-two punch out of the I, gate? I mean, in, in writing my notes down by you, you use that exact. I use that exact term in my notes when I was just kind of thinking about it. Was it's a perfect one-two punch to start off that show with, you know? And you know, and I I wished for years and years that they would play Bastille Day. I did get to see them play kind of a truncated version back on the Permanent Waves tour, but it was part of a medley. And uh, and then of course we got a little bit of taste of it during our thirty. Uh, but boy, I would have loved to have heard that some other time. But you're right. I mean, those two kicking off the album. I mean, damn, it just smacks you upside the head. I'm so know? jealous of you that you got to. <laughs> You're such an old fan that you got to see like a permanent waves show or, uh, what was the first, what did you tell me your first tour was that you saw? Yeah. It, my, even though I got into them in 77, I was, you know, my mom was always protective and, you know, back then going to concerts was an iffy thing. Cause it was a lot crazier back in the seventies to go to a concert than it is nowadays. But, right. uh, I didn't get to go see them on the Farewell to Kings tour or the Hemispheres tour, even though I was totally into them. But I Permanent Waves was the first tour I got to see. Yep. How does, uh, I assume you've seen a bunch since then, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, every tour since then, yeah, and multiple times. So uh, I would, over the last 36 years, I've, I've got to see them 31 times. Okay, so... It- Let's uh, let's abandon all the worlds of stage for two seconds. Is there a, is there a tour in your personal experience being there? Uh, was there a tour that stood out, whether for good or bad, uh, based on your experience? Was there a tour that was vastly different than the rest, or that felt different? Well, uh, uh, I'll say this: I'll kind of say that 
after the hiatus, you know, after Neil's tragedies and the Test Record Tour, and they took those five years off, um, the the euphoria and just the overwhelming emotion of being able to see them again on the Vapor Trails tour. I mean, it was like a celebration, like, oh, my gosh, these guys have risen from the dead. And, and I, you know, even though they've done many, many great tours and I, boy, all of them stick out for some reason or another, just that coming back from the dead sort of feeling and being able to celebrate with them again and just see Neil come back from, from all the struggles he did and that they were even better than ever. Uh, I think for me, just that that's my personal favorite tour is the Vapor Trails tour. Just, oh, wow. just for that, just for that reason, you know, um, because it did seem like we were never going to get rushed again. And, yeah. I can't, um, I can't imagine having been a fan at that time. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it was, it was hard, but, uh, you know, we, I managed and, and of course, you know, I'm into other music as well. So I was able to, you know, be into other bands and enjoy everything, but you know, Russia is always going to be my favorite. And, but then I, and the other thing just to wrap up that thought is I will say every tour that they've done since Vapor Trails and R30 and Six and Time Machine and Clockwork and R40, all of those shows are the best Rush shows I've ever seen. And I mean, all the stuff I saw on Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures and Signals and all the 80s tours and 90s, those were great tours, but everything since the 2000s has just been my favorite era of Rush. I totally agree. I, I have so much respect for you saying that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I'm not one of those fans who, like, kind of fell in or out. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be born and just to get into them at the right time and in the right age and the right, you know, context that I was able to grow with them. And, you know, as I grew into my teenage years and then early adulthood and now middle age, I mean, they continue to speak to me, and I've always certainly loved their new musical explorations, even if sometimes I didn't quite get them at first. I loved and respected this band so much that I was going to let them take me wherever they wanted me to. And so that's why I'm just as, I'm a biggest fan of Power Windows and Hold Your Fire as I am of 2112 and A Farewell to Kings, as well as Clockwork Angels and Snakes and Arrows. I mean, I, I love them all. Good for you, dude. That is not that is not hard to. Uh, it's not easy to find someone who thinks like that. You know, who who says, uh, "I love them except for this era or whatever." You know, right? Um, I think most of the people listening to us right now are with you and me, where we're, we there's nothing we don't like. Right, right, yeah. And I, I think if you're going to go out of your way to listen to a Rush podcast, you're probably <laughs> going to be you know into them pretty much. So, <laughs> Dave Steiner, thanks so much, man. Okay, man. Hey, as there, uh, I just wanted to uh, point out too, real quick. Um, I, as far as the album cover goes, I just wanted to point out I love the album cover, and I was thinking about this today. You know, it's a lot of times when you see a live album, you see a picture of the band playing on that live album. Right. But on on this one, we're just given that empty stage uh, with, of course, the iconic uh, "Man in the Star" logo above the drum set. And I, I just think, and of course, the album's title itself, All the World to Say, I just think that's a, a really cool, you know, metaphor, uh-huh. you know, that, that, you know, this is everybody's stage and, uh, and they're not on it, though. 
that's what I like about it. That is kind you of know? a nice touch to kind of deviate from the norm. I got, I guys, I'm a professional. I am a professional Rush fan. I can do that. They did. They deviated from the norm on this album yep. cover. Right. And then the, the one other thing I wanted to just uh, mention is also in the liner notes, um, they do kind of say something here that I think is a perfect wrap up here. And I'll just read it real quick. It says, it is not perfect, but it is faithful to us and to you. We have tried to strike a careful balance between perfection and authenticity and to create a finished work that you may enjoy and we may be proud of. This album to us signifies the end of the beginning, a milestone to mark the close of chapter one in the annals of Rush. And to have seen everything that, now this is just me talking, but to have seen everything that's happened since chapter one completed, I mean, it's, it's, it's been unbelievable. And of course, we know what Rush went on to do after this, but, but all the world's a stage. I mean, it's, 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 even today, it would probably still be a good jumping off point for somebody to get into the band uh, because it still has that intensity to it uh, and, 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 and whatnot. And I, I just think it's a great album. So it's I funny. appreciate you. Let me, yeah, go ahead. I, I heard that, um, uh, that line from the liner notes and I thought, I don't always, I always think of hemispheres as the end of chapter one musically, but I know they're not talking about musically cause they, they don't know the, the music they're going to write in the future. On, yeah, a, on yeah. like the, the spectrum of success, that was absolutely the end of chapter one, you know, with 2112 and coupled with this album that kind of pushed them off in a different direction where, as we all know, the record companies are like, all right, whatever, do your thing. And with yeah. Farewell to Kings yeah. and Hemispheres, while musically they're similar to 2112 and the older albums, they're, uh, they have a different vibe to them because they were so much more successful. Yeah, that, and, and I do see what you're saying. As far as the, the proggy era, absolutely it sort of ended with Hemispheres, uh, you know, with all those extended crazy uh, epics that they had. Uh, so I guess that would be an interest, but, but it, as you know, Rush got into the cycle then of releasing four albums and then a live album, releasing uh-huh. four albums and a live album. That continued all the way up until the 2000s, essentially, until they started releasing a live album after every album. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, so. and I, I much prefer what they're doing now, <laughs> where every, every tour gets a live album, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I do like it too. And also, if you ever get a chance, and I don't know, you've probably seen some of it. Uh, there, there are no. I know in the upcoming live albums that you'll be discussing, every one of them has a, an accompanying video or you know DVD that came with it. Of course, we didn't have that back then in the '70s. But there is a show that I'm sure you can see online. You can probably YouTube. In fact, I know it's on YouTube. Uh, it's like about a 36, 45 minute show of them playing in Passaic, New Jersey on the all the world, the stage tour. Oh, sweet. Uh, and, uh, in fact, some of the footage was included in, um, uh, beyond the lighted stage, as well as the uh, documentary on 2112 and moving pictures. So, uh, if, if you or any of the other listeners want to check it out, I I know that stuff's out there online and, you can see what they look like and hear what it sounded like uh, back in 76. Dave, are you a Cardinals fan? 
yeah, I like the Cardinals. Uh, I, I don't follow baseball as much as I used to. I've become more of a hockey fan these days. So Interesting. I'm, yeah, but I, I know the Cardinals are, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to get into the playoffs here and, uh, We'll we'll see what happens. But I yeah, know, and I guess I know more ahead. fans of the Blues than anybody, just because it's um, a jazz-related name. Oh, <laughs> I know a bunch of jazz musicians who like the Blues just because it's you know related. I'll be darned. <laughs> yeah. So, are you, are you a big baseball fan? Yes. Yeah. I, Yankees. Yankees or Mets? Neither. Oh, I'm a big Indians fan, and this is uh, me and Ed Stenger are holding it down in the Rush world for the Indians fans. Ah, gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, now, being, being being from New York, how did you how did you get into the well, Indians? I, I didn't want to root for the Yankees in the or the Mets. You know, everyone rooted right. for the Yankees and the Mets, so I wanted my own team. I gotcha. Yep. Uh, so, going yeah. against the green. Exactly. That's what you have to do. Yep. I hear you. Uh, all right, cool. Dave. Thanks so much. Uh, we really appreciate um, all the. It's clearly you, you did your work. You know, you, you did your research, and you brought a lot of good points to the show. And we really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. You know, I mean, I've you know, I've I've been listening to this album almost forty years now, and uh, so I probably didn't even need to take notes, but I did anyway. It's all in my head and heart. So. <laughs> That's how I feel about the podcast. <laughs> I'm like, I know everything about Rushed, right? And then I don't, so I got to write stuff down. <laughs> right. All right, man. Cool. Take it easy, and thanks again. All right, Jake. Take care. We'll talk at you some other time. You got it. We'll, talk, we'll see the rest of you guys soon. Thanks for listening.